On today's show, we're sharing Brian Balfour's frameworks for scaling a team. Brian's going to walk us through his frameworks, the real lessons he's learned, and Brian actually talks to us about how he wants to pay ICs, individual contributors, even more than managers long-term. It's a fascinating breakdown of how you build and scale a business. That and so much more, all in today's episode of Marketing Against the Grain. There is no secret formula for scaling customer support and boosting customer satisfaction. But there is the all-new HubSpot Service Hub, bringing service and support together in one platform so you can deliver the best experiences possible and free up a rep's time with AI-powered help desk, all so you can keep customers happy. Secrets out. Service Hub is a game changer. Visit HubSpot.com service to learn more. Kieran, kick us off today. Brian, welcome to the show. Excited to have you on. Brian Balfour, everyone likely knows him who listens to the show, founder of Reforge, one of the, I would say, founding people of growth and how people actually use growth within companies. Brian, what we want to do for this show, you're a founder, Kip and I are marketers. We want to try to play matchmaker between <laughs> founders and marketing leaders, not in like a Tinder-esque swipe, but trying to get <laughs> founders and marketing leaders on the same page, because it seems to me the hardest time that a founder has is trying to figure out their marketing team. Like they kind of get sales, it's somewhat measurable, they get the customer success, the engine, usually maybe they're from an engineering background or product, they engineer a product, but like the marketing team is this like quagmire of like, what the hell is this thing and how should I think about it? First of all, like you're a multiple time founder. Does that resonate with you? Like has marketing been the one team that you've struggled a little bit to like wrap your head around how to structure this team. We're going to get into how to hire a leader. You're from a growth background. Like, is that come a little bit more naturally to you? I do think it's a very difficult hire. I see it in a lot of my investing as well. I think part of the complication is that for the most part, most founders don't come from a marketing background. It's probably one of the less common things. So just there as a start of like knowing what you need, looking at like good versus great, like all that kind of stuff. All those things are a lot more difficult when you're hiring for a leader of a function that you don't really have a lot of experience or exposure to. And so... I think that's part of the reason. But even when you do know the function, I think it can still be very difficult. And this is kind of coincidental, actually. We have a head of marketing starting today. Oh, there you at go. Reforge. So awesome. our COO actually led the process, but obviously, like I was still really involved. So I think a few things that I commonly see that become difficult in this process is that, well, there's many different types of growth, right? Which you probably all talk about. There's growth models that are a little bit more marketing and sales led. There's growth models that are a little bit more product led. But even within marketing, there's actually multiple types of marketing. There's things that are more growth marketing oriented, more product marketing oriented, more brand marketing oriented. There's different ways to kind of slice this pie and, and slice this definition. And so part of the challenge is knowing who to hire is like there's actually a key step before that, which is what is your key hypothesis or how mm. do you grow as a company? Because just like anything, especially at the early and the mid stage, I probably can't go hire a Kip who has a 
lot of experience in all of these different types of marketing that probably impossible for most founders at the early and the mid stage. So instead, what you're going to need to do is you're going to need to find a marketing leader that their shape is more spiky and you need to make sure that that spike matches with right. mm-hmm. the spike of your growth model or, or like what style of marketing you kind of need at that moment in the company. And so there's that whole exercise that needs to be done as a first step. And doing that when you don't even have a marketing background and isolation, just the probability for failure is just so, so high. And if you get that wrong, everything downstream is going to be wrong as a process. And so you typically, like I recommend most founders need to like work with an advisor that has a lot of like reps doing this to help you answer that question to set up the process for like a high probability of success. So that's problem number one. The second problem is that I think you need to know the stage and maturity of the marketing function today to match the right type of leader. And I say the stage and the maturity of the function because this is also a place where you know I've made mistakes in the past as well. Because the stage and the maturity of the function can actually be at a different stage than the company overall. So it's typically common in startups that every function doesn't grow equally and nicely like together (laughs) in this like harmonious, you know, (laughs) ecosystem. What typically happens is one function ends up like getting much farther ahead than some of the other functions. And this creates problems and this creates gaps. And so a mistake or trap that can be made here is that you have a function like marketing that might be actually a couple steps behind other parts of the company, but you hire a leader that's at the maturity of the company and not where marketing is. And what that ends up happening is the marketing team can end up trying to like skip steps. What this looks like is that you bring in a marketing leader that's almost too mature, and then they end up hiring and forming a team like around a much later stage person versus hiring a team that's more early stage, generalist, kind of landing the core foundations of the channel, doing some of that channel building, all the building that goes on top of the foundation that needs to be done to like get it to where the company is at. And I actually learned this from uh, J.D. Sherman. I remember he was reflecting on his time at HubSpot with me and he was kind of recounting these times where marketing and sales were actually much farther ahead of some of the other functions in the company in the early days. And they had to do a lot of work in those other functions to catch those functions up to where like marketing and sales was at at the moment. And so I think that's also another common point of mismatch around the table. And I always say you can flow through steps faster, but you can't skip steps. <laughs> I like but that. so many people try to like skip steps. And I think the last piece is something I've learned over a long period of time. And the words actually come from Ray Dalio, which is like inspect the work, not the person. And the way that this typically manifests, especially with founders who don't have experience in the function or are essentially looking for shortcuts to give them confidence is that they look at the, like, the logos on the resume and the titles and all of those things. And they don't actually dig the three to four layers deeper to actually look at what did that person create? Like, what did they actually do? What was the actual work of the person? And, you know, evaluate that. Because if you don't do that, I think that's where just like all the logo and the brand chasing kind of comes in into the equation. So those are probably the few most common sources of mistakes. I'm interested if those resonate with you too. So there's one thing I would add, probably one of my favorite tweets ever is from Jason Limpkin, who runs Saster. And he's got a tweet that basically says, the CMO's first job and most important job is to understand that the CEO is actually the CMO Mm -hmm. and that your job is to bring that person's vision and strategy to life. 
And I think a lot of the conflict that I have seen and the challenges I've seen is because that the CEO actually doesn't have a strong point of view on what the marketing should be. Not how to execute it, but just like, Hmm. hey, this is what our brand should be. This is what we stand for. Just a handful of the basics. And it's like, oh, now that I get this, I want the right person to come and help me bring this to life. I think the great founders who aren't marketers still have a few of those proclivities of like the brand they're trying to build or some of the basic models of, to your point, Brian, of how they're actually going to grow the company. Well, a lot of founders, you know, they start by building for themselves, right? So even if you don't have the marketing background, you can at least ask yourself, well, if somebody else is building this product, how would I want to discover it? What would get me interested in it? Where might I find out about it? Like all of those types of things that can lead you to be better informed. Also, just I think something that I've learned as a founder is you can hire tons of great people. But as a founder no matter what, you've thought about this the longest in like the most amount of time. You typically go to bed, you know, thinking about this thing. You have dreams about it. You wake up thinking about it. And so like just those times and those mental reps in your head does build some form of an intuition for the customer or the product or what you specifically want. And figuring out how to communicate that to somebody else in a way that they can help you go execute on it, clarify it, like all of those types of things is important versus the, I'm just going to hire an experienced leader and be like, hands off. You do the magic, right? Like I'm going to be totally out of (laughs) it. That typically leads to like a late stage blow up at some point. (laughs) Totally. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 I think what you said, Brian, I think you're, Kip, you're saying the same thing is really important, which is taking the time up front for the founder to really figure out like what is the most important parts of their marketing to be like world-class? Where does that person really need to spike? Because if you break marketing down to parts, it's like the creation of demand, the capture of demand, and the creation of the demand is like the brand, the product positioning, like all the things that are much more complex to measure, where the demand capture is like the pay, the search, the life cycle, the email, like all the things where I think a founder feels a little bit more safe because that's really their slot machine. Like they can put in their dollar, they can see the $3 out, and they kind of understand what good looks like. The thing that I've seen continually where I found the struggles is the part that is less measurable, but I think is just as important, maybe more important because the demand capture part is actually getting saturated over time. And I think the demand creation part is like really important, but it's not really measurable. And so now it really does matter who you hire because you have no way of being able to tell if the work that that person is doing is good or bad. There's not like a clear metric, right? There, and it's somewhat subjective. Plus they're longer term bets, right? And so you actually have to truly believe that this is the right person. And so doing your due diligence up front and understanding like where does this person need to spike? Because to your point, if you're a series A, series B, you're not going to get a marketer who has spikes in all areas. Like they're not working usually for those kind of companies. And so you have to like be truly care about uh, where that person spikes. And that's what I actually tell founders is like, if you want to use a marketing advisor, that is such a great time to do it. Because if you get that hire wrong, every hire they make is wrong because it's usually prioritized on the incorrect spike. And then to your point, Brian, the point that you made was a great, great point. I hadn't thought about that before, but the maturity of the department versus the maturity of the company. Because then you hire someone that's at the same maturity of the company and then they hire strategic people and all these strategic people are sitting around writing each other memos. And like, you're like, well, uh, you know, I actually need someone to do the work. <laughs> right? And like, Well, soon we'll just have the AI bots writing memos yeah, yeah, to each yeah. other, hopefully, and we'll just like sit back and, and read it. But yeah, no, you're 100% yeah. correct. Yeah. And the final part is like be in the work. One of the things I, I don't know how you both feel right now. I feel like there's a change in tech where there's this like real push to get back to the work. Like I've seen it in companies yes. that I advise. Thank God. And Zapier, one of the things we really talk to about being a manager at Zapier is like not the management, it's being in the details. Like Brian Chesky had a really great podcast 
recently where he talked about the new growth playbook for Airbnb and talked about how he's in the details. Like, I love being in the details, but it became a, like a thing where you would see it on your 360 review, like, doesn't trust me too far in the weeds. Like, no, like, I like the work. <laughs> I want to be in the work. Thanks. And uh, I don't know if you both feel that, that there's a shift to get back to the work. Like, I think that's a really enjoyable change within tech. I'm personally enjoying it as well. I think there's different ways you can get into the work. I think what some folks need to understand is that the best way to learn and grow is to get like lots of reps at something. And yes. those reps are higher quality when you have somebody there giving you feedback on those reps. That's very different than getting in the work and just essentially doing all the work yourself, which you also need to do sometimes right. as a manager and leader. And you should not feel guilty about those things. But I do think we went through a period where it was like basically any feedback you would give, there was like a guilt to it because <laughs> you know, you're not like giving me the independence or the autonomy yeah. that I need and all those things. And I don't know. I think also at Reforges, we've published a little bit of a framework that we call Captains, Coaches, Players. And what our org is now really built around are these captains. They're kind of very senior, super ICs, essentially. And it's a leadership, but it's a very different type of leadership. It's a leadership by when you're on the field, like in soccer. It's like the captain's on the mm. field and they're leading by being on the field. That's very different than a coach who's coaching from the sidelines. And I've found that analogy to really helps people understand, well, what type of feedback am I giving? When am I giving it? Like how often? What yeah. is my style of leadership? Cool. All of those types of things. But the coaches are there in service of the captains and the players, right? And I think that's also another thing that commonly can get lost. What I always thought about, and I think, I don't know, Kieran, when you and I work together and Brian, you and I work together a little bit too, it's like, I always try to go into a session of details with people and be like, I have to tell this person something about the craft they do not know, or I am useless here. Right. Right. Like, it's not just <laughs> enough for me to be like, oh, let me give you some feedback. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, hey, did you read this API documentation? We could do this thing now that we couldn't do two months ago. We should run an experiment to try to do that thing. And to me, that's being the details. People often joke that marketing is like art and science. And I believe that. And I'm not an artist or a scientist, but I can tell you that both of those things evolve people who are deeply in the details, mm -hmm. right? Like art, artists and scientists are two of the most detailed-oriented professions in the world for good reason, because you have to be in the details to create something remarkable. And at the end of the day, like that's what a marketer is trying to do. They're trying to make something remarkable for their audience, for their customers. 100%. One of the really good things that Wade called me at, at some point when I had started in Zapier, I think it was three months, four months along, and I kept putting knows this. I'm quite a direct person. It's not hard to read, but you, you <laughs> got that just, Irish directness <laughs> in you. I just say whatever the thing is, right? Like, And so um, <laughs> I was in a new company and I would be in the strategic docs or whatever the memos and like I would be like asking you know, do you think we should do this? And it was clear that I had a direct opinion on this thing, but I was trying to like come through the questions. And Wade was like ping me and said, you should speak facts, not questions, right? Because if you say a fact, you actually have to know the work. You have to state fact, you have to state reasoning behind that fact, and you have to state like why that's your opinion, right? So you actually have to have done the work to give the context and why you actually think that way versus this thing where you look at a memo and like 50 people have been in the memo and everyone's asked about 10 billion questions, but not one single person has stated fact because they haven't done the work to like get context, state facts, right? And I think that's another example of kind of being in the details. One tactical thing that we've done at Reforge is we've broadened our product review process, which is very feedback oriented to the entire company. And we've set an expectation that the entire company are supposed to bring projects to it. We call it HBO, standing for Hypothesis Beta Outcome. 
And part of those is that the forcing function is that you can only bring customer-facing assets to that meeting to get feedback on those things. But part of it is that marketing is expected to bring some of the things that they have created mm. that is customer-facing to get feedback from not just myself, but our COO, other kind of relevant people to that cross-functional initiative as part of it. And look, we still make it very clear that the owner is the owner of that. This is a feedback session. It's for them to take the feedback and do what they want with it, except in very specific rare cases. But I think for myself as a manager, it's a way that for people to surface the work that they're doing to it and vice versa. It's an avenue to collect that feedback. But these rituals, these practices have been implemented, I feel like more commonly in other functions like product. And so we just took these rituals and we broadened it to the entire company. And we found that to be pretty helpful. I love it. It also teaches all teams how to take feedback. I think that's an important thing for everyone to be able to receive. But just coming back on the coach, captain, player. So within Reforge, like if you're managing a team, is your expectations of that person that they excel at the work and the management is like something they should be good at, but a secondary to the work? Or how do you think about assessing someone who is like splitting their time between those two things? Like they're managing a team, but you expect them to be really great at the work, but they also have to build a team, do the career development, like get good feedback, like all those kind of things. How does that come out in terms of how you measure their success? Well, to the extent that's possible, and if you can't do it in all situations, is that we try to very much split the IC and essentially what we would the management, the coach responsibilities. And so the most important thing for coaches is that they are recruiting and developing other captains, mm. right? That is the most important thing for them to be doing. But there's some like other guidelines around that, which is like they should be positioning players on the field. As you know, everybody has strengths and weaknesses. And depending on where you position them within the organization, you can be a game changer instead of the results. So that's another key function of a coach and a manager, right? But as part of like developing these star players, part of it is essentially giving them feedback on the work. And I've found that some people can be freaking great at the work terrible at the coaching part, <laughs> right? And uh, it's typically not common to find somebody who's like bad at the work, but really giving good feedback that typically still has to be present at some point in their career. But once they go into that coach role, it's expected that about 70 to 80% of their time are focused on those coaching types of responsibilities. And then probably the other 20%, they might need to pick up a key strategic project or something that their team can't fill. Versus the captains are the reverse. You know, there's 70 to 80% are like the IC responsibility. In certain occasions, they will manage a couple folks, but no more than that. Otherwise, they just get sucked into all of the management work. And so as part of this, the coaches can help identify the key strategic problems that need to be solved in the org. But they are then supposed to hand the problems off mm. to the captains to go actually, you know, lead the solutioning part of the process, part of it. Now, this structure and what we've specifically optimized for is you are limited by the number of captains you have in your organization around this. And so as a result of this, you know, we totally redid our compensation structures. The IC paths are equal comp. And at some point, I'm going to make them be comped more than the same level at a manager. So a level five wow. IC is comped the same as a level five 
manager. Titles are the same as well as a couple other things. And so what I eventually, I think what you need to do eventually is you have to give somebody a very specific trade-off to choose the manager and the coach path. Because right now, because of the way our ecosystem works, everybody feels like that's the only way to develop in their career. And as a result, you have a bunch of folks entering that path who don't really enjoy that style of work. And as a result, end up not being very good at it in the long run. And this is myself included, by the way. <laughs> I way prefer the IC work versus the manager work, right? So like, unfortunately, as a CEO and a founder, I don't get to get fully out of that. But if I wasn't a CEO and a founder, I fully would be optimizing my role in my career more around that path and the style of opportunities. So it is still a work in progress of how we design the system and how we honestly scale it over time. I think that'll be like the key question right now. Right now, it's totally manageable. We're only like 75 folks, but we'll hit some new blockades when we get to a much larger scale. But to your point, you know, it is a little bit of a legacy system to the fact that you used to have to overvalue management because the only way you could get work done was by scaling human time. Correct. Right. And now through major advancements in computing, artificial intelligence, everything else. Yeah, this is part of my bet. You can now scale things asymmetrically without adding humans. And so management should be less valuable 10 years from now than it is today, right? And that's part of the bet you're making, right, Brian? (laughs) It is part of my bet. You're basically saying like, oh, the leverage you get for management is going to decrease as we get better at scaling through non-human means. And like, I think that's awesome. It's also something I've kind of always believed in. I always kind of believe like, if you know the craft, I can teach you how to manage. It's very hard for me to teach somebody who's great at managing the craft. Yes. You know, like it takes way longer. It takes a lot more repetition and feedback to learn the craft than it is to be an average manager. To be a great, great manager, yes, it takes a lot, but you can be an average manager with not a crazy amount of like help and support. Yeah. And and I should say, like, some people kind of misinterpret what I'm saying. I mean, like, I hate managers, coaches, I think it's useless, all that kind of no. stuff. But I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm like, not at all. I actually just think that there's like the the typical saying, like, people don't leave bad companies, they leave bad managers. I think there's some element of truth to that. And so I do think the future is like, how do you take the great managers because they really freaking love it, right? And they like that style of work and it fills their bucket and you give them a lot more leverage because I actually think there's more people in the world that get more satisfaction out of the creation pieces of it. It's just that our ecosystem historically has not been wired to incentivize those paths for all sorts of reasons. And I don't know, I hope it changes. Maybe it's a big hope, but I do hope it changes. Well, to take your metaphor one step further, the greatest teams, the captains call a lot of the plays. 100%. Right? Like yes. the not the coaches don't call the plays on great teams. The captains are on the field and they see the situation and in the moment they call the plays. And you're just trying to build a structure that allows more people to call plays more directly who are closer to the work. 100%. Which I think we can all admit is like the right way to grow and solve problems. And, and in my analogy, I've, I actually, in my internal document, I say like, we are playing the sport of soccer. We are not playing the sport of American football. In American football, you do have the coaches calling the plays. And the reason you have the coaches calling the plays is that you run a play, everybody has their set things that they're supposed to do, and then you get to stop and you get to reset. Work is not like that. It is a much more fluid game between like shipping things, iterating, seeing the customer development. Like, it, and it is much Working more that like, on the field. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so, like, it's a very purposeful part of the analogy is that it's a very specific style of game. And as a result, I think 
But what you're talking about, that best teams, that highest performing teams are the ones that are performing in the way that you mentioned. It's kind of like the famous Tony Robbins, like he kind of describes three archetypes and everyone fits into one of those, which is like the entrepreneur, the manager, or the creative. And over time, we force the creatives, the people who love to be hands-on mm. into management because that's the only way to build their career. And for the most part, they hate it and they actually don't perform very well. What's actually really interesting in companies as you grow is you take your best people, force them, <laughs> you don't force them, but it's the way, like they kind of force themselves because that's- You the incentivize way, them. They, yeah, you incentivize, incentivize them. them to want this thing. Then you take them out of the thing they're really good at right? You have to replace them. And then you actually end up with an average manager, right? So you actually kind of lose in both ends. Lose both ways. Yeah. And what's kind of wild in the future is actually like the amount of managers may decrease over time, but the amount of management doesn't. It's just that the management now shifts to ICs who have to learn how to manage all of these kind of AI assistants. Because (laughs) when you're working with these AI assistants, it's like having a team of people, like a little army of interns, right? Like, I don't know if you've played with GPTs. Mm -hmm. It's like trying to prompt a intern to build a piece of software for you. <laughs> I haven't thought about that analogy, but you're kind of right. You're like trying to figure out how hell. to verbally just... Dis- it is. Yeah. It is. It is frustrating. Like, no, I didn't mean hell. that. I didn't yeah. mean that. No, that's not what I meant. Do the other thing. No, not like that. Like this. <laughs> like, yeah. all right, the only cool thing is you can shout at it without being brought up in front of HR. <laughs> like told that you're like really... Bu- but um, it's kind of interesting. Like if you're an IC, part of your job is going to be learning to like have these assistants that allow you to get much more work done. Yeah, I agree. Also, I just want to make sure we don't skip over the Tony Robbins point because I do have this picture of you at a Tony Robbins conference <laughs> okay. dancing. Last person in the world that we would expect would reference Tony Robbins, everyone. Well, just, I did. I have the famous story that I've told on the podcast before that I joined a cult. The cult was NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, where you learn to like, reprogram your brain. And I accidentally joined the cult and I did not know this at the time. I spent $10,000 to try to I did to not find know myself. this about you, by yeah, the way. Yeah. This is new news oh, to me. Yeah. This is a great story. I was deep great in this story. world. <laughs> I was trying to figure out my life. I was deep in this world. But your linguistic program is actually a valid thing. Lots of uh, therapists use it, so I'm not discounting that. Well, look, speaking of great marketing, Tony Robbins is a great marketer. Oh, he's a fabulous marketer. Great marketing. Yeah. Fabulous marketer. Yeah. We'll be right back. But before, let me tell you about another podcast I love. Nudge, hosted by Phil Agnew, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Ever noticed how the smallest changes can have the biggest impact? On Nudge, you learn simple evidence-backed tips to help you kick bad habits, get a raise, grow a business. Every bite-sized 20-minute show comes packed with practical advice. Nudge is fast-paced, but it's still insightful with real-world examples that you can apply. Oh, and it's the UK's fastest-growing business podcast. If you want an MBA's worth of insight one podcast, this is the right show for you. Entrepreneurs will love this show because it's filled with repeatable proven studies, not hearsay and one-off success stories. You're going to love the show because I was interviewed by Phil. You can go check out my episode. And I recently listened to an awesome episode. It's called Six Scientifically Proven Persuasion Techniques. It's a must listen for anyone in marketing. Listen to Nudge wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we talked a lot about actually the marketing leader. I thought we'd give a lot of points there that people can use. One of the things I would love to just touch on is you and Reforge have kind of defined what growth is. Like at most companies, the way they actually do growth has been trained from Reforge, right? 
And you are the guru, I think, of frameworks and actually being able to like figure out how to define things, figure out the upside, all these kind of different growth models. And so when I talk about marketing, the demand capture versus the demand creation, I would love to hear from you when you start marketing teams as a founder. You know, someone comes to Brian and they go, hey, Brian, like I want to do this brand awareness campaign. Hey, Brian, I think our product positioning really matters. Hey, I actually think we need to do much better design because design truly matters. Like all these things that are in the awareness bucket, but very difficult to put any kind of meaningful metric. Do you go like, no, I don't want to do that. Kind of, I don't know what good is. Like, how do you approach that when a marketing leader or the marketing team want to do things that are harder for you to quantify the upside on? I fully believe that it ends up being a blend of all of these things. What specific blend you need at any specific moment in time ends up being the question. Mm. And that's different on a company by company basis, right? And it kind of gets back to where we even started. It, It sort of depends on what your hypothesis is and intuition and definition is for how this company is going to grow like now and then next in the future as well. And so brand is kind of the obvious one that typically comes up here. And so maybe it's hard to quantify, or maybe these other things that you're mentioning is hard to quantify. You should still be able to connect the dots in a very specific way of why it's important to the customer or how it ties to the customer and how that eventually ends up creating value. And so I think actually Reforge is a good example here because brand actually played an important part early in the company. And we didn't measure it. It was impossible to measure. And more importantly, it didn't come from good design, which is how a lot of people think about (laughs) brand as to start with. Because... I created our first website on Squarespace, <laughs> you know, from a template and that lasted us for seven years, right? So like at no point in that process did our brand come from good design. But what it did come from was other things and a very specific set of choices, which we knew that at least in professional education and within our target market, the most common question was, is this going to be worth it or not? Because people had taken you know, free courses online or a Udemy course and like been very disappointed. And so brand was actually a way for us to short circuit that question in a number of different counterintuitive ways. One is like at the time, we forced you into an application process, which immediately communicated to the customer mm. that like this isn't for everybody and not everybody is going to get in. Second is that upfront in our marketing, we said this is not going to be easy. It's going to be an intense at that time, like eight weeks. It's going to be incredibly hard. We do not promise like the six-minute abs type of thing. <laughs> we were also really high-priced. We also were very specific on the people who we co-created with and the brands that they were associated with. So these were all a very specific set of choices that had nothing to do with a design or a brand value statement or, or whatever it was, but it communicated something very specific to the customer that if you get into this thing, it's probably going to be damn valuable, yeah. right? And it, it tied back to that core customer problem. And then we've made a bunch of changes to involve this over time, just like as any company needs to evolve its things over time. And so it's not a substitute or an excuse for being able to describe very clearly how it ties to a customer problem. Exactly. You, you still need to be able to spell that out. And if you can spell that out, then you can evaluate whether it's worth the investment a lot more. But when you can't spell that out, that's where I get like a little bit skeptical because you either don't have a good enough hypothesis yet, or it's just like vaporware. Right. It might not be worth investing in. So. Right. I love this. I actually couldn't agree more. So 
you know, I have teams dotted across all of the self-serve business from measurable to immeasurable, but everyone actually has the same sort of OKR model. And to your point, everything starts with the customer problem. What is the customer problem? What is the customer insight? What is the deliverable? And the deliverable can be a metric or an artifact, right? Like artifacts. I think we probably uh, <laughs> take some inspiration from your latest site. But like you can look at the artifact and then communicate like what is the value of this artifact against that problem and the insight, right? And it doesn't matter if something's measurable or unmeasurable, you should be able to do that. And I think any founder can understand that, right? I was talking to a founder recently and I was telling him to do this. And I was saying like, if they did that for you, will you understand that? Because I'm sure you're customer centric. I'm sure you understand your customer and your customer problems. He was like, yeah, like, okay, I get it. Cause he was really struggling with the unmeasurable parts. He did not know how to quantify whether it was yep. even worth doing. And I was like, well, start with the customer problem. Like you start all of your business meetings probably through the lens of the customer and trying to solve the customer problem. And it's not on you. So one of the things I really want to like push on and it'd be interesting to get Kip's idea is this whole thing that I hear marketers say was like only work for a CEO understands marketing. I think that's because you as a marketing leader suck, right? <laughs> you've actually decreased the number of companies. You've, yeah. you've instantly decreased the number of great companies that you can probably work for because you don't want to do the work to work with that founder to be able to educate that founder or share the vision of your marketing through the lens of your customer because every great founder understands their customers and understands customers' problems. And if you can't relay your work in a way where they understand how it solves customer problems, that's never on the founder. That's always on the marketing leader. And so I actually totally agree with how you describe that. Like, as long as it's aligned to a customer problem, the founder can understand what the impact of doing this work is. Look, the statement you just said, that's the business equivalent to the people who say that like they can't control their emotions. You know, <laughs> I just feel how I feel. That's like total bullshit. I'm just you direct. control your life. You control all the inputs of your life. You don't feel how you feel, actually. like You actually have complete control. And the reason for that is, is because even brand marketing, product marketing, things that are inherently subjective forms of marketing are based in logic. Right. They're based in logic. To give everybody like a very concrete example, we relaunched our sales hub product at HubSpot in September. And so everybody out there listening to this is probably going to launch a, a new product or relaunch a product in the next year. And one of the questions you can ask is like, I don't know, do we do brand marketing as part of this relaunch? Well, you just follow the logic. All right, well, what's our awareness among salespeople? And what is it compared to our other products? And for us, wow, our awareness among salespeople was much lower than our awareness among marketers or customer service leaders. Wow, we clearly have a gap there. If we don't change that awareness, we're going to have a much smaller pool of people to do the direct response, right. highly measurable Capture. marketing to. So we have to then go and create some new awareness and demand in the market and invest a portion of our budget in doing that with that target audience. That's just logic, right? right? And then, yes, you can debate what the perfect channel is, and it's not 100% uh, perfect science, but you can strategically understand that that is the best thing to do for the problem you're trying to solve in that moment. Yeah. Going back to a little bit what you were saying, Kieran, is I do think one of the key skill sets to learn as any type of leader is how do you explain your function and the work of your function to leaders of other functions that know nothing about your function, exactly. including the CEO. And to be honest, when I was at HubSpot, I was effing terrible at this. Uh, so <laughs> like, I, like, we all are. And that actually, it that that I think is like actually one of the toughest skills as a leader mm -hmm. and is another thing where you've got to get a lot of different reps at it of like just kind of like poking at it from different directions, different simplifications, different visualizations to like help somebody. An engineering leader is going to perceive it very different than a sales leader, like all of these types of things. And so it is a foundational skill set of a leader is to be able to explain your function to other leaders who don't know it.
Right. It's why um, every marketer is a storyteller, whether they are going to tell that story externally or not, because internally they have to tell the vision of their strategy, the marketing strategy, and their audience is usually the founder, the CEO, the exec team. And I think that's like the cop out I was trying to get at, which is, oh, well, I'll just go work for a founder who understands marketing. Sure, they probably do understand marketing, but they probably don't understand all of it, right? They don't understand the whole awareness and capture piece. They probably don't agree with you on most of it. They probably think some things are more important than others and you disagree. Yes. And so you still get into the place where you have to be able to communicate the value of your work. And it should always be through the lens of the customer. And I don't, I don't know how many marketing leaders I've met where if you ask them, how many customer calls have you done in the past month, two months? None. I looked at the data. Well, you should be fired because the closer you are to the customer, usually the better you can tell that story. So I think that is part and parcel of just being a good marketing leader. Yeah, agreed. One of the things I wanted to quickly end on, Brian, is that one of the other most common challenges is portfolio of bets. And so if you are a, a marketing leader, you have to, across the year, look at a portfolio of bets and you've either got your growth stocks or you've got your index funds, right? Your growth stocks are like the things that I want to take off, like my moonshot bets. And then my index funds are like the surefire, like iterative improvements I can make. What would you like? Like ideal work, you're a new marketing leader who sits down with you and hopefully they don't come in hot and say, Brian, I want to like redo the brand and redo the website because you've got some problems. It's <laughs> 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 like they instantly, like, you, you know, your spotty senses go up and oh my God, this is the wrong stuff. But like they come in and they're like, okay, like here's the split between those two things. Like here's how I think about the number of moonshots, percentage of moonshots I should get. And like, here's how much time I should spend on my iterative improvements. Do you have any like feelings towards that? Or what does like good look like there for you? Well, I think the way that most people perceive the whole concept of a portfolio of bets is a bit of a luxury of later stage companies mm. that are on a more stable growth path in the sense that most people interpret portfolio as there's some form of diversification and or there's some kind of rule of thumb. It's like 70% of my bets here, 20% of my bets here, 10% in moonshot. And then you basically take those moonshots and as they mature or validate, you progressively move them into the other buckets. Yes, ideally, that is the way that it works. I will tell you in the early to mid stages, <laughs> that is rarely actually how it works. Right. Uh, you typically find yourself more in situations where you've got to be on one end of the extreme or the other. And because you don't have enough resources and enough people to have that nice visual of diversified bets. Sometimes, you know, you're taking moonshots and then you hit on something and the right strategy is like, oh crap, like with my limited people and resources, we got to go all in on the incremental optimization. And as we get to a different stage, I know I'm going to have to hire a backfill to start to like balance the portfolio. And sometimes you don't really have like a fire ignited. And the only thing you can do to get a fire ignited is to be taking pretty big bets. Which gets me to the second part, which is like, I actually think most people misinterpret what a moonshot is or what perceives for them. And so I think most people perceive moonshots as things that are going to be a lot of work and have a low probability of working. But I think an interesting counterexample to this that we recently talked about on unsolicited feedback is mid-journey and their very explicit distribution decision to pair themselves with Discord as the channel, right? And you look at that so they're a three hundred to four hundred million dollar ARR company right now, which is freaking mind blowing. They're only eighteen months crazy. old. Crazy, yeah, crazy. Twenty people. 
And their early decision was like, we are going to marry ourselves to Discord as a way for people to educate themselves on the product, meet other people, discover different elements of mid-journey and the creations of mid-journey. And you look at that and it's actually, that's a decision that's not a lot of work. In fact, it was a decision to cut a lot of work. They didn't have to build a lot of different surface areas to get to the distribution, but it was a really high risk decision mm-hmm. because it had some serious trade-offs, right? Uh, like around those things. And it just so happened that those trade-offs worked in their very specific scenario. And so the second part of that is I think a lot of people want to find the low risk, high reward things. And honestly, like in reality, those things don't tend to not really exist. Uh, they're, they're, they don't ever exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, see, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I think this is part of the challenge. I do think if you have like a more stable growth channel that's on a path, your later stage environment, all these types of things, you have a little bit more room to plan your portfolio out. But I typically find in the early to mid stages, it's just like things grow in incongruent ways in the same way we were talking about earlier of like, you know, some functions grow much faster and mature much faster than others. And yeah, so it's like not this like perfectly shaped sphere that just like grows in volume. It's like this globby, spiky like thing that you got to like mold like over time. (laughs) So, Well, and sometimes look, you make one of those bets and it works really well. And then out of nowhere, it just stops working. Oh yeah. You know, like that's the other thing is I think we as humans are like, oh, I figured this thing out. I don't have to be paranoid. I don't have to take more risk now. I can just kind of do this tried and true thing. And it's like, no, you always have to have some risky things as a hedge because you never know when that core thing you depend on is going to just stop working or work half as well as it is today. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Or just the amount of work that it takes to get to the second and third layer of some initiative Yes, yes. to yes. really understand whether it's working or not, yes. right? Like it's typically the first thing that you do, that first layer never really gives you the signal of whether it's truly, it, it, it's, it's not a valid signal. Yeah. I think that's a really great context of Moonshot. Whenever I think of Moonshot, I actually think of it as, do I have historical context on this thing or not? And so I have zero historical context that this thing may work. It has to have some amount of upside. Maybe I can't predict that, but it has, I guess it has to solve a customer problem of like a certain order of magnitude. But I always think of it as not really a moonshot, but like a non-historical context bet, which is a riskier bet because I have no historical context to say that this thing will work versus the ones where you have some amount of historical context to say it probably will work, but like it's more kind of iterative return. Mm. But do you take the same approach with even something that's, uh, I guess, like more known in the ecosystem. Like, I think there's a difference between no company has ever grown on Discord before and that there's that type of unknown yeah. versus we got a UGC SEO play. There's tons of companies who've grown through UGC SEO. We've just never done it ourselves. Right. Do you view those things differently? So you're saying that, uh, do I view it differently that there's historical context in the market to say that thing yeah. worked? Like there's a, yeah. yeah I th- so I think there's very rarely of no example of it because we're in a place where there's, I think examples for everything. That's fair. Will it work for my company is still somewhat of a riskier, there's still some amount of more risk because I haven't tried it within the company. We tried uh, something in Zapier, which seemed very logical. It's kind of like Miro and these other companies where you could actually have users share their workflow. It would automatically templatize it and then create a template for it that you would see through user-generated search, right? Yeah didn't work. And it didn't work for some nuance that is actually that we could have caught up front, if I'm being honest. But 
some things you wouldn't have thought about in relation to how it worked for other companies, like mm. these nuances to how our product works. And actually some of the customer insights on why they wouldn't share their workflows with others wouldn't have existed in some of these other companies that had worked for. They were very unique to Zapier. Like one of the things that was very unique to Zapier customers is that their workflows is kind of their secret sauce. And so they actually were incentivized not to share them because they didn't want to give away their secret sauce, right? Where if you're in a mural or notion or things like that, that same incentive doesn't exist. So there's just some inherent risk built up because it's hard to capture like all the things when you're starting to roll that out. Hmm. Yeah, because that seems like if you would have told me that hypothesis up front, I would have been like, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> like, or, like, of course that's going to work. That's what I, I kind of mean by the second and third layer. Like, that's where you really get to the nuances of these things in either direction. The nuance that invalidates something like this, or you get to the nuance, the tweak that just like puts the pieces into this perfectly right. locked puzzle and it ends up unlocking something. Exactly. Brian, we really appreciate you coming on. I want to give a quick shout out. I'm so glad you created the Unsolicited Feedback podcast. I've been hoping you create a podcast for some time. Reforge, I've been a lecturer. I've sat in some of the sessions. They have some of the smartest people, some of the smartest lecturers, some of the smartest people, some of the smartest conversation that I've been part of. So I hope all of our listeners go to check out your podcast. It's awesome. I listen to Thank it. You. And we really appreciate you coming on and sharing all of the insights. I think we've like brought marketing and founders and CEOs just that little bit closer together. <laughs> Closer right. today. I like it. They're all hugging. Nice. Yeah. Founders and marketers out there, just hug it out. You know, just have a little hug session and yeah. it'll all work yeah. out. It's the holidays. Yeah. Just relax. 